Hey, good morning, church family. It is wonderful to be with you today. Uh, so good to see uh, so many lifelong friends that we had the privilege of serving with during our days in Somerset, and so many of you remain, uh, remain connected to over the years uh, since then. It's only better uh, to see those uh, who the Lord has added uh, to this church family and God honoring your witness in this community and continuing to grow and use the church. How grateful I am have the opportunity to uh, see Pastor Bill and Retta this morning. I thank God for their faithful ministry here over the years. Uh, how proud I am of Todd, of Pastor Todd and Stephanie and, and uh, seeing how God has continued to grow them and use them and use them. Uh, Pastor Todd has shepherded this flock in these days. Uh, what a blessing that is. So gratifying to me personally. I thank God for it. Uh, to see uh, uh, the Teals, uh, Ricky and Tanya, and, uh, to know the uh, years that we had the privilege of serving together and them continuing faithful in ministry, how the Lord has added the West and uh, so many others uh, to uh, lead the church over the years. Uh, I am just thankful to the Lord for what he has done and is doing. Uh, I bring you uh, regards on behalf of Michelle, those who know her, my wife. Unfortunately, she's not able to travel with me. Uh, we will, at the end of May, uh, end a 23-year uninterrupted, 23 uninterrupted years of having an elementary school child in our house. Uh, I'm not sure how that happened. It was not on purpose, but uh, but uh, they, the kids uh, uh, are in school, and my travels don't necessarily line up to their school schedule. Uh, so uh, we have uh, a fifth grader uh, who will be moving into middle school. Uh, my my plan for our fifth grader, Lily, uh, is uh, often stated to uh, to her just so she understands how it's going to work on her way to college someday. Uh, she has instructions to drop me at the nursing home, and that way I won't have to worry about her, and she won't have to worry about me. Uh, we also have an 11th grader. Uh, both of those came into our family after we uh, moved away from Somerset, and then uh, for those uh, old friends of ours, uh, our son Daniel and his wife Derica are in Rome, Georgia, uh, where he manages a hunting operation there, and our daughter Anna is in Louisville, uh, where she was a ICU nurse and now is doing uh, medical sales. Uh, I don't know if she's trying to grow up to uh, your legacy, Father Gill, or, but uh, she in, indeed is enjoying her new career much more than those 12-hour overnight nursing shifts, I can assure you. But uh, again, just grateful to see so many of you again, and thank the Lord for the way he continues to bless and use you. Uh, I want to share this morning uh, a, a greeting, not just on behalf of the Chitwoods, but on behalf of your IMB missionaries. Uh, there are right at 3,500, just over 3,500 of them, uh, who did work in 122 countries of the world this past year. Uh, those missionary families include about 2,700 kids. Uh, thank you for loving them. Thank you for praying for them. Uh, thank you for giving to support them. Many of you taking volunteer trips uh, over decades to go alongside of them as encouragers, as uh, extra work hands in the harvest uh, we praise God for your partnership, not just those individual connections, but so grateful for this church family. And might the Lord continue to bless you, use you, bless and use us together, even as we've worshiped today and read in the scriptures and reflected in the songs, that his name might be glorified among the nations. And today I want to 
bring our focus into the importance of that, the importance of what we do together, uh, that the Lord might be glorified among the nations, how he has chosen in his sovereign plan to use us, to use his church to extend a knowledge of him, the gospel, to every nation, all peoples, tribes, and languages, that someday there will be a great multitude gathered around his throne to give him the praise that he deserves for all eternity. I want to turn your attention to a passage of Scripture in the book of Romans. We had our Scripture reflection from Romans. I want to highlight Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, and read down through verse 18 as you're uh, turning the pages or flipping on the device or whatever that looks like where you are seated. Let me give a little context uh, to uh, this part of Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. One of the things that Paul addresses uh, in the book of Romans is a very deep personal concern to him. It is a very deep personal concern to him because Paul was a Jew, he was an Israelite, and one of the concerns that he has is for his own people. One of the questions that presses upon Paul and that Paul deals with, not only in the book of Romans, but we're referenced in other places in his writings as well, is what is the state of the Jews? God's covenant people from the Old Testament, God's elect, what is their state now that the Savior, the Messiah has come, but so many have rejected him as the Son of God? As the Messiah. Does this in some way mean that all of those many, many, many promises that God makes to them in the Old Testament were untrue? That they won't come to pass? That they won't be fulfilled? Paul is dealing with that question. What we'll see in these words, and you can find in many other places, that Paul will reference in Romans as well as his other writings. As Paul makes a very clear and certain declaration that every promise God has made will be kept, including his promises to his people who are the Israelites, God's covenant people. But dealing with that question, he begins with questions in verse 9, where we'll turn our attention at this moment, Romans 3, beginning verse 9. What then are we Jews any better off? In other words, in light of all the promises God has made, are we somehow better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or of serpents, snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. If those words were not condemning enough, here, verse 18. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul certainly will affirm on many occasions that God's promises to the Jewish people will be fulfilled because God keeps every promise that God makes. But he also makes it clear, especially in these verses, that God's promises do in no way exempt any individual, be they Jew or the rest of us, from responsibility for our sin. Here, the questions in verse 9. What then? Uh, we're all sinners. Are, are, are the Jews better off, however, in light of the promises of God? Paul says, no. We've already charged all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Paul declares that the Jews who have sinned, though they are part of that covenant people, are in no way shielded from God's judgment by God's covenant to a people with Israel, their Jewishness does not somehow remove their responsibility for their sinfulness. But it's not just true of the Jews, it's true of everyone else. It's true of the human condition. As Paul will say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we all are responsible for our sin. As Paul deals with this issue, again, in a very uh, personal uh, manner for himself, because him being a Jew, as Paul deals with this issue, what Paul is really pinpointing is a problem that all of us have. In fact, it's the world's greatest problem. If I were to ask you today, what, in your opinion, is the world's greatest problem, what things would begin to come to mind in terms of problems our, faces, our world's facing? It doesn't take me more than five minutes of watching a newscast or, or, or thumbing through the headlines on my phone or a device to almost become clinically depressed as I think about the problems our world is facing. Our world is facing incredible problems. Just over a year ago, I stood on the border of Poland and Ukraine, witnessed busload after busload of women and children coming through the border checkpoint into Poland, fleeing the Russian soldiers and the bullets and the bombs. A year has passed and now the number who have fled Ukraine is close to 8 million people. When you add the number internally displaced, that number tops 14 million people who have literally left home and jobs. Many left their fathers and their grandfathers, their sons, fleeing for safety. Ramifications of this war, even as we see saber-rattling week after week and threats of nuclear attack, the ramifications of the war for the world are really hard to measure. The death toll from the February 6th earthquake just... Now, a bit over two months ago in Turkey and Syria, surpassed tens of thousands, 100,000 plus injured. Natural disasters, plague, the, even the tornadoes in our own country and the cost of those. 
We observe each year in Southern Baptist life on the calendar day we set aside known as Global Hunger Sunday. Did you know that there are two billion people in the world today who will struggle to find one meal to eat? Two billion, that, that, that's hard to even conceive, isn't it? There are 345 million people in the world today, we are told, on the verge of starving to death. That number, by the way, over the last year is up 25%. You know why? The war in Ukraine. Ukraine being a breadbasket country, but not just uh, for, uh, for Eastern Europe, it, it, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, where food insecurity and, and, and hunger is uh, such an overwhelming problem. And, and the, the movement of grain from Ukraine down into Sub-Saharan Africa, the lack of movement, has created a growing hunger crisis. You think of those numbers. I mean, it, it, those are overwhelming problems, aren't they? Do you know there are more slaves in our world today than any time in human history? There are more than 50 million people who live as forced laborers, modern-day slaves in the world. The magnitude of those problems, again, it would almost leave you depressed, wouldn't it? But I submit to you, there's a problem that surpasses all of those problems. By far. In fact, the greatest problem in the world, I believe, can be communicated in a single word. And that word is lostness. Lostness, spiritual lostness, separation from God because of sin. Now, why would I say in light of people starving to death, in light of people living as slaves, in light of people living as refugees in the midst of war, why would I say that a spiritual issue is the world's greatest problem? Well, there are many reasons, but two surpass the others. One is that this is the only eternal problem. You know, just about every problem in your life ends the moment you die. <laughs> I'm not sure that's encouraging, but it's true. <laughs> just about every problem in your life ends the moment you die. Whether student debt's going to be arrested, you won't care if you're dead. <laughs> Whether you have to bear the tax burden of that, you won't even care about that when you're dead. Those lower back pains, forever gone the moment you die. How the cats are going to do in recruiting, and is it going to look any better this year than it did last year? <laughs> I assure you, you won't care the moment you die. But there is one problem. The moment you pass from life into death, the magnitude of that problem only will set in in that moment if you are lost. The Bible says that God is love. What would it be like to face eternity separated from the source of love? The Scriptures say that the Spirit of God is our comforter. What would it be like to live eternally without any comfort or source of comfort. That's the agony of hell. The Scriptures say Christ is your joy. What would it be to live a joyless eternity? That's the grieving of hell. The Bible says Jesus is your life. 
What would it be like to face eternity separated from life and the source of life? That is the eternal dying of hell. Being spiritually lost is the only problem that really lasts. And that's why it's the world's greatest problem. But there's another reason it's the world's greatest problem. It's the world's greatest problem because it's everybody's problem. Some people go hungry. Some people are trafficked. Some live as refugees. Some face cancer. Some battle with depression. Every human being is born dead in their trespasses and sins. Spiritually lost, separated from God because of our sin. Paul drives that home in the verses that we've read. I mean, time and time again, with such clarity, with such determination, making the point uh, in so many ways and even with illustration so that none of us could think upon hearing his words, oh, that might be everybody else but not me. In fact, no less uh, than nine times, just in the verses that we've read, Paul makes it explicit to us, and, and so let's, let's highlight them. Verse 9, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged both Jews and Greeks are under sin. All, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Verse 10, it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Nine times. Paul points out, hey, it's everyone's problem. And just in case anyone is listening and thinking, well, maybe everyone else, but not me. Paul's going to use an illustration here uh, to drive the point home yet again. Uh, the illustration that Paul appeals to is the same that James will use, particularly in James chapter 3. And, and, and the illustration simply works like this. If you think that's not your problem, then consider your words. Consider your speech. James talks about the tongue. We might, uh, in uh, uh, today's uh, capabilities, say, hey, you think this doesn't apply to you? Record yourself talking for a little while. Play it back. You'll find that it does. And so Paul drives home that point. Look, verse 13. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And then there's social media. <laughs> uh, it was an interesting article that appeared in the Atlantic a few months ago. It caught my attention because of the title of the article. The article was entitled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. <laughs> With a title like that, I thought, I need to read that article, see what the fellow has to say. And the fellow, the author, was a guy by the name of Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. It was interesting, as he was talking about the, the situation of our culture, of our society, and how insane things seem to be, that he points to social media as uh, one of the, the huge issues that have got us where we are. Uh, I, I found it especially interesting because as the article unfolded, uh, he began to uh, call to mind 
an Old Testament passage of Scripture. He began to call to mind the record of the Tower of Babel. You remember, you remember that story from the Old Testament where, where the people wanted to make a name for themselves? And, and so they all came together uh, to uh, embark upon a building project. They were going to build a tower. And the tower was going to reach to the heavens. It was going to reach to God. And in that, they would make a name for themselves. But this building project that had brought them together, as you recall, ended up driving them apart. So much so that even their language was confused and, and they could not even communicate with one another. Well, the author uses that, that record from history to say uh, that social media is sort of like this. It, it promised to bring us together, but it's driven us apart. It was supposed to bring us together. We call them Facebook friends, right? <laughs> oh, but what an unfriendly place Facebook can be. Uh, but where the author let me down, I, I, I was tracking around with him, thought he was doing a great job. I just thought he needed to take it, the final step. And make the point that the problem really isn't social media. The problem isn't the platform, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you're using. The problem isn't the keyboard or the small device, large device. No, the problem is here. It's a problem of the heart. Because you see, the words, whether they are spoken, typed, written, they simply reveal what's in our heart. Jesus made that point to the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus speaks to them and starts out strongly. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, <laughs> you bunch of snakes. How can you speak good when you are evil? Listen to this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words are simply revealing your heart. And so, Paul, interestingly, using the same imagery in Romans 3.13, Jesus says, uh, has said to the Pharisees, you, you bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers. Paul says, the venom of asps of snakes, of serpents, is under their lips. Anyone have a good snake story? <laughs> I've got plenty. Uh, but, but my favorite one comes uh, from my teenage years, uh, back as a boy in Jellicoe. Uh, I'd found out about a summer camp experience between my 7th and 8th grade years that, that really had me interested uh, it was a, a wildlife conservation camp that took place way out in West Tennessee, uh, outside of Memphis, Tennessee. It was put on by Tennessee Wildlife Research a Resource Agency, the University of Tennessee, and uh, 4-H. Uh, I had heard that you could go to this camp experience a week or two long and, and spend a week learning about conservation and critters, and I was interested in all that. And, but there were, there, there were other things that, I, uh, that really caught my attention. I was told at conservation camp... Uh, you get to dissect a beaver. Uh, and so, you know, the mind of a 13-year-old boy, I thought, I thought, man, that'd be fun. And I did not know that the beaver would be frozen and have to be thawed out in the bathtub in my cabin. 
that's the way it worked out. But uh, they did thaw it out. We did dissect it. It was a good time. Uh, I was also told that you get to have rattlesnake for supper one night at conservation camp. I, I uh, interacted with quite a few rattlesnakes uh, living in the mountains, but I never had one for supper. And so I thought that'd be good. And, and uh, it was a I wouldn't say it was good, it was okay, but, but uh, I wouldn't say it was good, but we did have rattlesnake for supper one night. But, but there were two things that made Conservation Camp like legendary and that really had my attention. One was called the Snake Roundup, and the other was called the Snake Bite Club. Now for the Snake Roundup, here's how it worked. Uh, we, I, I'd ridden a bus from Jellicoe, close to Memphis. It was school bus. Old, these, these, these were back in the old days. You know, you're talking early 80s. It was a, it was a 10-hour trip on a school bus. Well, come, come the night of the snake roundup, we got back on the school bus. Everybody who came to camp got back on the school bus that brought them. And they, they, they took us to a swampy area just outside of Memphis. And they set us out of the buses. And we spent the night catching snakes. Now, can you imagine how that'd go today? <laughs> You, you, you wouldn't as much as get the kids on the bus. Somebody would file a lawsuit. I mean, they would, be, they would shut that operation down. But I'm telling you, in 1983, you could literally fill a school bus full of kids, dump them off in a swamp, and tell them to catch snakes all night and get away with it. And that's what we did. But the next day was the day that, I mean, that brought most of us to camp. Because the next day, they took, the, the non-venomous, non-poisonous snakes that we'd caught the night before, we put a bunch of them in a pillowcase. And one of the camp counselors carried that pillowcase full of snakes all around the camp. And any, any camper who voluntarily wanted to join the snake bite club got the opportunity to do so. It was a very simple process. <laughs> you put your hand in the pillowcase, you're an inductee. <laughs> but the problem for me was the cabin I was staying in, where we thought the beaver, that was all the way down at the end of the row of cabins. And so by the time the pillowcase full of snakes made it down to me, I assumed they were tired because I stuck my hand in the pillowcase and literally nothing happened. And so I'm sitting there, my hand in the pillowcase full of snakes. I look up the counselor who's holding the pillowcase and said, nothing's happening. What do I do? He said, well, pull one out. And so I reached down and find a good fat one, and I pull it out. He hung there in my hand, about as disinterested in me as my teenage daughter. <laughs> and so I looked back at the counselor. I said, sir, what do I do now? He said, well, slap him. <laughs> and I did. And in case you're wondering, snakes don't like to be slapped. Because he slapped me back with his fangs. And that's the day I became a member of the Snake Bite Club. Now, I need to offer very quickly uh, two, uh, two disclaimers. First, that was not church camp. <laughs> I'm from a little further over in the mountains, and I know what you all think about that. Now, we, we had those, those churches in our community, and I'm not that kind of Baptist. I, that, it was not church camp. But the other disclaimer is, I was actually already a member of the Snake Bite Club because I was born a member of that club. We've seen a couple of references here in Scripture to serpents, vipers, snakes. 
But if you know your Bible, you know there's a ton of them. The earliest one appears in the earliest pages. You remember that one, don't you? It's the record of the serpent slithering into the Garden of Eden to tempt the woman and the man. And how upon being tempted by that serpent, Eve and then Adam did explicitly what God had told them not to do. We call that sin. And they were bitten. The consequences of their sin were not just for them, not just for the serpent, but for all of creation. We refer to it as the fall. I want to highlight some of the words of our Lord as He confronted that sin. Back in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, God first confronts Eve. The Bible says, beginning in Genesis 3.13, The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. One of the things that I want to call to your attention today is that the consequences of sin for Eve were not just for Eve. The consequences of sin for Adam were not just for Adam. No, there's a clear reference to their offspring Adam and Eve had walked with God in the garden. They sinned. The fellowship was broken. The relationship severed. They were lost. But not just them. From there, moving forward, even until this day, as the Scriptures say, all are born dead in their trespasses sin. The curse of Adam extends but we also know the sinful heart abides. So you don't have to look far into the story of their children before sin is so readily apparent as one son murders the other son. And lostness was the greatest problem in the days of Cain and Abel. It's the greatest problem in every generation to come. You look to the days of Noah. You see how God judges the sin of the earth. The death that results because the wages of sin is death. Continue reading the Scriptures and look in every generation. You find the same is true. The same was true in the days of the prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. God spoke through His prophets to call to the people attention upon their sin, the judgment that was to come. But even then, God began to speak of a solution. As the prophets would point to a Messiah, a Savior, who would come and give His life for the sins of the people. But in every generation that has passed, even into our generation, this has been the world's greatest problem. And I submit to you today, lostness is a greater problem in our world than it has ever been. 
Why would I say it's a greater problem today than ever before? In November, human population passed 8 billion. And there are more lost people alive on the planet today than ever before in human history. Each year, my research team at the IMB gives me an updated statistic. It's based upon three sets of data. One is the global population growth year over year. The second set of data is the daily global death rate. It's reported country by country, and they, they bring that into a conglomerate figure. The third set of data is religious affiliation. What do people claim to believe? Who do they claim to follow? Based upon those three sets of data and the formula that they use, they're able to give me an estimate of the number of people who die around the world every single day having given no indication that they have heard the gospel or that if they've heard the gospel, they've believed it, that they've born again, been born again, that they've been saved, that they'll be in heaven. And so the number that they provided me this past year of the number of people who die lost every single day around the world 157,690 every single day. But as I mentioned in the Sunday school hour, this is the time of year when we update our statistics at the IMB. We report upon the most recent year. And based upon the, stat, the data that has come in over the course of the most recent year, that number has had to be updated. It's taken the largest jump in human history from 157,690 estimated to have died lost every day last year. This year, that number has jumped to more than 170,000 who will die lost every day. Grace, there's no greater problem in the world than that. There's no problem that begins to rival that there's no problem with eternal consequences but that problem there's no problem that applies to everyone who is apart from Christ but that problem this is the greatest problem in the world if you were to ask me today why does this church exist I'd tell you simply to address that problem grace God has you here to address the problem of losses it's the greatest problem in the world and God has given a solution to it and that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That's why we celebrate when we gather together. That's why we say we have something to say uh, to a lost and dying world. Because we know God has solved that problem. The Messiah who was prophesied to come did indeed come. It's fascinating as Jesus tries to explain to Nicodemus, recorded in John chapter 3, who he is and why he has come. We find Nicodemus struggling to understand it. What does it mean to be born again? I mean, how can you enter into your mother's womb? But Jesus uh, trying to, to open Nicodemus' mind to the spiritual reality tells Nicodemus a snake story. I don't know if you remember that from John chapter 3, but, but Jesus references an anecdote from history when the children of Israel were wandering from the wil in the wilderness. They were on their way from Egypt where they'd been slaves to the promised land. And yet again, as is true in every generation, they'd rebelled and sinned against God. And this time the judgment that God sent upon the Israelites was poisonous vipers into the camp. Snakes were biting people and the people were dying. 
The people seeing the consequences of sin, again, the wages of sin is death, they began to cry out to repent and, and to ask God for mercy. And Moses, their leader, cried out on their behalf and, and God provided a solution. You recall what that was? God said, Moses, fashion a serpent of bronze and set it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten by one of these poisonous vipers, if they'll look to that serpent of bronze upon the pole, they won't die. They will live. Jesus to Nicodemus references that. And Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That any who believes in Him will have eternal life. And He was upon the cross where He died for your sin, where He solved your greatest problem, where He solved the world's greatest problem. We know that, don't we? We enjoy, those of us who are in Christ, we enjoy the benefits of what He's done for us. Thank You, Lord, for solving my greatest problem. The Lord has left us here because there is a world full of people, many of whom know nothing of that solution. They've heard nothing of the Gospel. They know nothing of Jesus. And apart from Him, all who die, die lost. Church, that's why you're here. You're here because of the 12,000 people groups in the world. There are yet 7,000 that remain unreached with the gospel. 3,000 that remain even unengaged with the gospel. They have a problem. And we know the solution. Might God use us to the end of making Him known and bring the hope of what Christ has done to lost and dying world. Let me invite you to stand. As we come this morning to a time of commitment, it might be that you're here today and you realize that the world's greatest problem is your problem because you've yet to have that problem solved. You've yet to put your trust in Christ. But the Bible says that what you need to do is simply trust in what's been done for you. In fact, the Scriptures say that if you will believe in Jesus, that means you trust in what He did upon that cross, that it was for you, and that He died for you, He's been raised from the dead. If you will turn from your sin and repentance, turning from your sin, turning to Him as your Savior, and if you will confess Him as Lord, because He is, your problem will be solved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be saved. Today, if that's the commitment that you're ready to make with your life, we want to be able to celebrate it with you. Maybe you have questions Exactly what does that mean? What does it take? As we sing in just a moment, Pastor Todd's going to be here at the front. 
Uh, he's well equipped and ready and anxious to answer those questions for you if you would come. Maybe God is leading you to become part of this church family as uh, you've been visiting a church that you clearly see is committed to addressing the world's greatest problem. I'm sure they would love to talk with you about how you can join this fellowship, begin to serve here. But maybe it's not as much about coming to the Lord today. You've already come to Him. Maybe it's about going. God has placed the nations upon your heart. With the world lost and dying, billions who have yet to hear, I'd love to talk with you about what it would mean to go live your life among the nations, sharing the gospel through the International Mission Board. I'll be here at the front. However God is speaking to you today, it's really not my invitation. I'm not the one who invites. The Lord invites. Respond to Him. And then, come. Uh, share that with us. Or come, let us pray with you, counsel you, direct you, as you seek to obey faithfully the Lord's will for your life. As we sing.